Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, Awaken, and welcome to you. I worked really hard to find the most nonpartisan presidential outfit that I had in my wardrobe, and quite frankly, I think I nailed it. We've got blue, we've got red, we've got a suit coat. Reminds me of a story, actually, of a youngster at Awaken who, uh, talking about politics and the lead up to the election, um, said to his mother, you know, Mom, and I quote here, I think Pastor Micah would make a great president. He would say, hello, friends, I'm Micah, the president, if we haven't met yet. (laughs) So Malcolm... I have a few stories in my life that I will take to my grave as a pastor, and that is one of them, one of, uh, one of the more funny ones. So that's funny. I wanted to start with that because it has been quite a week, has it not? Uh, it's Thursday. We usually record on Monday, but we thought we, we really have to wait to record so that we have mildly updated information and not what we think might happen as we record this podcast. And so... Um, I think what has become most clear to me in this last few days of election watching is how truly and deeply divided we are as a country. Um, It appears that there are two sides, and you are either on one side or the other, and there is no margin for error. And so I want to begin this morning with a message, a reminder, an invitation uh, of unity. Jesus in John 17 in his longest prayer prays for unity, that we as the church would be one as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. Paul in the book of Galatians and Colossians says that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but that somehow in Christ we are one. In the book of Ephesians, he says that Christ's death and resurrection is tearing down the walls that have been built between us that are hostile and there is a new humanity in Christ being created. And as we come to the end of our gathering today, we're going to come to a table, a symbol that somehow, and this is the unbelievable story and proclamation of the gospel, that in Christ's death and resurrection, we have been made one. So however you come here this morning, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're gay or straight, rich or poor, black or white, or any other of the ways in which we divide each other up, I want you to be reminded that in Christ we are one. That our differences or our theological convictions do not bind us together, but it is the love of Christ that binds us together. And so however you come today, uh, I want to invite you to come as you are. Uh, to worship, to receive what you need, to hear um, the very word of God, potentially. Um, So pray with me as we begin. God, we ask that as we gather in these next few moments that you would bind us together, that we would be reminded that it is your love that we see so clearly in Jesus that um, creates a bond between us. And so I pray that not only that that would be true, but that that would grow and that you would deepen that in our community, in our church, and in your church all around the world, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Come broken hearted, 
that rescue began. Come find your mercy, O oh sinner, come near. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. So lay down your
kids. It's uh, Mr. Ark, one of your teachers for Kids Community. I was looking at the calendar and I couldn't believe it. It's less than four weeks to Thanksgiving. And when I think of Thanksgiving and holidays, uh, I love to remember, think back to memories when I was a kid and we would get together as a family. Uh, One of my favorite memories is about 15 of us uh, cousins packed into the basement around uh, tables playing a crazy card game called Pit. You're just having a wild and crazy time. But what I really loved about our family gatherings was when after we ate, 
when the aunts and uncles and the uh, grandparents would start telling crazy stories from the farm. So you wanna hear one of my favorite stories? So uh, when my grandmother one time, uh, everybody was out working, my dad was like a teenager, and uh, she had to go to town, so she told my uncle Clark, also a teenager, that there was a hot dish in the refrigerator that they could eat for dinner when they uh, were done with work. So she got home that night and my grandma said, uh, Clark, I just looked in the refrigerator. How come you didn't eat the hot dish? We did. What do you mean you ate the hot dish? I'm looking at it in the refrigerator. Well, what did we eat? Uh, well, the scrap pan is gone, the one that I scraped the plates off at night and, and throw in all the fat and stuff nobody wanted to eat and I save it. I, I uh, fill up the pan at the end of the week, I save it and I give it to the dogs. <laughs> so uh, the funny part is not only did they eat it, but they didn't realize that it was anything other than some kind of new type of hot dish. Now, kids, this is a tip from uh, Mr. Art. I don't recommend eating your pet's food for dinner. So why am I telling you a story about family gatherings? Well, one thing I loved about our family gatherings, you know, it didn't matter if you were a third cousin, fourth cousin, or fifth cousin. If you were a friend of a cousin, everybody was welcome around the table. And it didn't matter your viewpoint on politics or religion or any number of social issues. Everybody was welcome. Everybody was loved. There were no sides. There was what, what, when I look at Jesus, what I would call a third way. Instead of drama or taking sides, it was a way of love. And you know, that's what I really, one of the things I really appreciate and love about the Awaken faith community. We're a place that welcomes everyone and we work really hard to love God and to love each other together. So this month in kids community, uh, the theme is to see and we're learning about seeing God and God seeing us. And of course at Thanksgiving, uh, expressing gratitude and thanks. And kids, I want you to know that I see you. Now I can't see you in person right now, but I think about you a lot. And I can see you in my mind. And I actually hear stories here and there about a number of you. And what I would call your acts of love uh, I, I've heard stories about you uh, raking neighbors' leaves or shoveling snow for them or helping to bag groceries for people who need food or bringing food to people who are sick or maybe they just had a baby. Uh, some of you marched together this summer uh, for social change uh, with other kids in your age. I hear about uh, you welcoming people from other countries who have come here as refugees about uh, older kids helping their little brothers and sisters with homework about helping out around the house. And I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. I'm really proud of you. And at Thanksgiving this year, I'm going to give thanks for you, the kids of Awaken. I have a request for you. Would you pray this week would you pray for us? Uh, the adults in your life, in the people of this country, it's been a rough year with COVID-19. Some people have lost jobs. Uh, it's been a rough election cycle. 
and a lot of people are just really tired and weary. And it would be so awesome, kids. Would you all join together? Would you pray this week? Would you pray for us that we would have a renewed love for God and love for each other? That would be so awesome. In fact, I'm going to close this in a prayer that's taken from Pastor Micah mentioned the Gospel of John, John 15. Now, you remember we talked about the four, good, the four books in the Bible that share the good news about Jesus. You remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Can you say that? You remember that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So John chapter 17, uh, they're a part of an amazing prayer that Jesus prayed. He prayed for us. He prayed for the future followers of Jesus, and he prayed that we would have unity around the good news of Jesus, and that we would love each other, and through our unity and our love, do you know what he prayed would happen? That other people would take notice. It would give attention to Jesus. It would make Jesus famous for them and that our faith community awaken would be known by others for our love and our unity, that people would know, oh, they can have different views of, points of view there, but they love each other, and they're there about love and about following Jesus together. So I'm going to pray that, that with that prayer that Jesus prayed for us, I'm going to pray that now for our community. Kids, would you join me in that prayer? Almighty God, we ask for your blessing on all the kids that are a part of Awaken. We ask for your blessing on their families, on their friends and their schools and all their different situations. Lord, we pray you bless them, give them strength, bless their parents, bless all of our community, all the people at Awaken and all of our different uh, situations. And would you help us to love you and love each other in a way that causes people around us to notice that gives attention to you and that they would want, they would be curious, they would want to know what is this beautiful thing happening at Awaken? We want to be a part of that. We want to know about Jesus. We pray that you would do that, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and King. Amen. So kids, would you pray for us this week that we would love God and love each other in a deeper way and know that I love you. God give you eyes to see all that is good, all that is good. The courage for anything. May you be strong, may you be strong. May God give you ears to hear His loving voice, His loving Thanks, Art, and 
event. I, I kind of want to go to your family gatherings. Heavens, uh, that sounds fun. A um, couple of announcements that need to share with you before we jump into today's teaching uh, by way of community life. Lots of things happening at Awaken. You can always go to the website and the calendar on the website for up-to-date information as well as the Awaken Weekly, which you can subscribe to. But let me draw your attention to a couple of things. First, if you're new, so glad that you're with us. We recognize people have found us during COVID. I, that's hard for me to put my head around, but you're out there. So welcome to you. Glad you're here. Um, if you can fill out, there's an online welcome card that just lets us know you were here. Uh, Kathy Solomon, our director of community life, will contact you and um, we'll get to know you, um, hopefully. So that. Um, second, if you are a, an artist and someone who creates, a crafter, if you will, uh, we're doing a winter market this year that essentially allows you to... Um, uh, have a link on our website, uh, which links to your website where you might sell some of your goods. So we typically have a winter market where people can come and, and purchase things and support you all. And so we're going to do that. Um, the deadline to, to participate in that is November 15th. And there is a Google form online that Melody will get and she'll contact you about that and how that all works. So if you're interested, fill that out. Uh, second thing, relates to November the 12th. Two things happening that night, the first of which is right here in this room, uh, our contemplation and prayer gathering. We open up the sanctuary from five to eight for you to come and participate in that. Um, I'll let you in on a little secret. Not a lot of people have, have taken us up on this offer, but the people that have come, um, I think have had a very profound experience of being in this space and spending time um, being quiet and praying and meditating and contemplating. Uh, and so that is available to you November the 12th, 5 to 8 p.m. Also that night, if you are interested in serving in some way, Awaken partners with a group called, used to be called Sheridan Story, it's now called Every Meal, and they provide meals to kids uh, who maybe experience food insecurity over the weekends and other times. And so uh, the volunteer opportunities used to be to go and drop those food packs off in their backpacks and their lockers. Of course, we can't do that. And so we're going to the warehouse. So that is November the 12th from 5 to 7 p.m. There's a link that you need to use to sign up to be a part of that. And uh, a group of us are going to go up there, myself included, maybe some of my kiddos, and we're going to um, serve and pack some meals. So I hope to see you there. Last but not least, my friends, Jane, our dear friend, is... Uh, offering two different informational sessions on spiritual direction. So spiritual direction groups are something Jane has been working slowly but surely on and has a number of people waiting in the wings to start some new groups. And so if you're interested in that at all, uh, it's a small group of people, usually three to four, maybe five people, who are a part of the spiritual direction group together. So those two opportunities are the 16th and the 22nd of November. On the 16th, it's 8 p.m. On the 22nd, it is 7 p.m. Again, everything is online. You can check the website, awakenwest7th.com. Okay, let's get to it. Second Samuel chapter 12, if you have your Bibles. Uh, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a perception or consciousness that is alternative to the dominant perception and consciousness of our day. Uh, we're going to dive right back into the prophets this morning, and one of the more famous stories or parables in the Old Testament, we'll be talking about a prophet who didn't have a book, um, but played a very important role in the story of Israel, and in, in particular, the story of David and Solomon. That prophet is the prophet Nathan. Now, what some of you may not know or care about is that the Masters Golf Tournament has been rescheduled and it will be played next weekend. <laughs> Still my beating heart. 
This was supposed to be the best Easter ever. The Masters was supposed to be on Easter. Easter got canceled. The Masters got canceled. But it's happening next weekend. Now, some of you may not care. That's fine. And you may not believe that people, that before all this COVID thing happened, there were fans that were, they would go out and watch golf tournaments. Again, hard to believe people would do this, but yeah, thousands of fans would gather, you know, around the golf course watching people play golf. And um, if you were to watch some reruns of old golf tournaments, not that anyone would ever do that, you might find, it, or I should say, it won't take long before some dingus around some tee box after somebody hits a shot yells this phrase. And I don't know where the phrase came from or who started it or why it became so popular, but like, it's notorious, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, you, somebody would hit a shot and you'd hear, you the man! I don't know where, where it came from or why people would say it, but it was like, you're the man. That's what they would say, you the man! Now, the story we're going to read today about Nathan and David includes such a line. Now, in this instance, uh, on the golf course, it's used to encourage, to buoy one, uh, another person, to uh, give them love, send them joy, right? But in this case, um, Nathan's use of you're the man is an indictment that totally demolishes David, stops him in his tracks, puts him in his place. 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you would, if you can, stand, if you... Uh, I'd invite you to do that, and we'll start in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I am refraining from doing Geppetto from Meet the Parents. A little saucer. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that had belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. David burned with anger and against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I will bring calamity to you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. He will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do all of this in broad daylight before Israel. Pray with me. God, as we uh, spend a little bit of time with this story, I hope and pray that, um, as you always do, that your word would not return void, but that it would do what it set out to do, that it would accomplish in us what it intends, what you intend for it to do. So may we be uh, open with eyes to see and ears to hear the word of the Lord today for the church in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. The church said together, 
Amen and amen and amen. That's quite a story and quite a finish to the story my I had. Holy cats. Uh, first, who is Nathan? What's the context of the story here? So Nathan was born during the time of Samuel. Back up a little bit from David. Um, so he was born during the time of Samuel, who was a prophet to Saul, the father of David, and to David. Um, when Israel was still a monarchy, this is at the end of the period of the judges and right before Israel becomes a monarchy with a king. Um, Nathan was born to average people. He was not notorious. He was not of import. He was not born to noble blood. Just the average bloke named Nathan. By the way, Nathan means given. Um, He ends up with two sons who serve in David's court. So we can kind of deduce that Nathan ends up being maybe 15, 20, 25 years older than King David himself. Nathan appears three times in scripture. The first of which is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David comes to him and says, I think I want to build God a temple. Like I live in this house, but the Lord's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. So I think we're going to build a temple. Nathan's like, seems like a great idea. Nathan goes to bed. He receives a word from the Lord, a vision where he and is told to go and tell David these things, which is number one, that he ensures the Davidic dynasty or the Davidic line, the Davidic kingdom, which of course will come, uh, from which will come Jesus himself later. But then secondly, that David will not build the temple, that his hands are, are sullied and it will not be him, but it will actually be his son Solomon who will build the temple. Um, The second passage that we find Nathan in is the one that we read this morning. We'll come back to that. And then the third and final passage is in 1 Kings chapter 1. David is near the end of his life. He's old. He's feeble. The text says that he's cold. So they put a blanket on him. And all the while, this guy named Adonijah, great name, Adonijah, um, coalesces some power. It's, it's literally like Game of Thrones. And he attempts to usurp the throne of King David right out from under his nose because David, of course, is old and feeble and cold. And so it's Nathan who brings this to the attention of uh, his friend David. And so um, essentially, David and Nathan, and uh, they, they grab all of the people that uh, are needed to 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 anoint Solomon as the next king of, uh, of Israel. They expedite the process. They push it through Congress. And this happens all while Adonijah and his men are feasting, thinking they were pulled, they've pulled one over on the king. But Nathan essentially ensures the Solomonic throne, which is kind of the high point of Israel's history. So pretty big deal. Now back to our passage. Um, if you know the Old Testament story, you know that the one we read is right in the middle of the soap opera, also known as David and Bathsheba. Quick recap, David, the king, sees a woman that he desires bathing on a rooftop. He summons her, she comes to the king, he has sex with her, she gets pregnant. David then, while, by the way, while her husband is fighting a war for the king in his military. David calls Uriah the Hittite back from war in hopes that he will sleep with his wife while he's home. Uriah is above this. He will not, he has integrity and he, uh, he won't do it because his men are out in battle. And so he sleeps at the doorpost, foils David's plan. David sends him back to battle, to the front lines to ensure his death. He dies. David takes his wife to be his wife. She bears this son out of wedlock named Absalom. Quick, dirty version of the story. Enter the prophet Nathan. He finds himself in the presence of the king, and I love how chapter 12 starts. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, as if like there's no discussion on how he gets there, there's no process of discerning, there's no, like what does it mean to be sent by the Lord? He just appears, he shows up, and he knows he's got a message for the king, and he says it, which in some ways is 
what the prophets do. Then he tells the king a story, which I would highly recommend. If you have a really hard word for somebody to hear, you know, razor sharp, you might want to package it in a funny story or a parable. It's a little less, it's a little disarming in that way. But in the next four verses that we read, you hear one of the most, if not the most famous passage or parable, I should say, in the Old Testament. A rich man has everything he could ever want and more uh, animals and, and riches. A poor man has something of great value, this one ewe lamb. The traveler comes to the rich man, which of course requires a uh, show of hospitality to the traveler. The rich man doesn't take one of his own lambs, which he has far too many of, but rather takes the one ewe lamb of the poor man, kills it, feeds it to the traveler, and David is outraged. He says this man should be punished. And this this is when the line uh, comes that sort of unzips David like a jacket. You're the man. You're that man. You're the man in the parable. You're the rich man who did the awful thing to the poor man with the one you lamb. The greed, the hypocrisy, the the manipulation, the secretness, the selfishness of the king is exposed. The lights get turned on and Nathan becomes the conscience of the king. He becomes the conscience not only of the king but of the kingdom. He becomes the conscience of the empire because all of this is happening under the radar. The king can do what the king wants to do. He has all the power he could ever want. And so he takes the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He kills Uriah the Hittite. He has this son out of wedlock and the lights get turned on and Nathan the prophet becomes the conscience of the king and the conscience of the kingdom and the conscience of the empire. And it's this idea that I want to spend the rest of our time on. The prophet as the conscience of the state. During this week of our electing our next president of the United States or the divided states of America, I'm reminded that the U.S. government is built upon the idea of law, that we have laws that govern our relationships with one another. And there are two bodies that legislate, that pass, that create, that push these laws, submit them, and then pass them through our government process. Now, those laws can be vetoed by the president or the, uh, a majority in, in one of those two bodies can veto something the president is up to. So there's checks and balances in that system. Once these laws are passed, they are then um, carried out by administrators and elected officials and agencies. These laws can be disputed in our judicial system if someone doesn't like the law or thinks the law is unfair. They can be disputed and um, by judges who are appointed at those seats. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. America and other governments around the world, they have laws. But these laws are indifferent. They're impartial. In theory, the judges are as well who adjudicate these laws. So what or where is the conscience of the nation? You know, that little voice that says, maybe you shouldn't do that. Right? Laws, we have laws, absolutely. You know, it's a country built on laws, but we have no conscience. A nation of laws can produce order, but it can't produce compassion. And it can't produce mercy. Something other than that, something other than laws can only produce that. Abraham Lincoln in his first inaugural address said this, We are not enemies, but friends, we must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection, the mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be 
by the better angels of our nature. That's the famous line everyone remembers, but man, what an orator. That guy could lay it down. What is he saying? Lincoln is arguing that our best as humans cannot be realized by law, but rather by passion, relationship, love, honesty. A retired Baptist minister, actually, a man named Howard Best writes this, this is where churches and other religious bodies can play a role in taking our nation to a greatness that can never be achieved by that can never be achieved, that can, that can never be achieved by a nation of law that has no conscience. This is the role of the church and the prophet. I think we can say that the prophet Nathan becomes the moral conscience of the nation. His voice, his leadership, it helps create and establish the kingdom. He quietly uh, architects one of the greatest uh, periods of time in Israel's history, the Solomonic Kingdom. And we don't know much about Nathan, where he comes from or where his family, but we know what he says. And he, throughout his life, speaks truth to power, to kings, to religious leaders. He not only tells the king he wouldn't build the temple, but then that his life, his decisions, his selfishness, his, the error of his ways would cost not only him, but would cost the nation. Nathan operates as the conscience of the king and the kingdom, keeping him and the kingdom tethered to relationship, to mercy, compassion, to forgiveness, the things that make them human. Brueggemann argues that the prophet is one who nurtures, nourishes, and evokes a perception and consciousness alternative to the one that the state, the kingdom, the institution, the dominant one of our day. And I wanna argue today with Dr. King and others who have argued that the prophet is the conscience of the state. Martin Luther King says this, the church must be reminded and listen carefully here. The church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority which is ironic because it's really close to the moral majority, which I think King would argue loses its prophetic zeal and, and loses its, its moral and spiritual authority in doing so. To the church gathered this morning as we await, well, maybe not anymore, but as we have been awaiting one of the most important elections in modern history, a few questions I want us to consider. Um, in what ways has the church become the servant of the state? And in what ways has the church become a tool of the state? Right? Famously, 87% of evangelicals put our last president in the office. There's a lot of people who don't think that's a good, a good thing. Now, maybe you do. As Art mentioned earlier, we're trying to create a well where multiple viewpoints are welcome. But the question still stands, in what ways has the church become the tool of the state? Is there any way in which we, the people of God, those who gather in the name of Jesus, have surrendered our prophetic voice to become the tool or the agent or the servant of the state? What does the church of Jesus have to offer in the way of guidance or critique to the state? What is the critique that's needed to a nation of laws that may have lost its conscience on some things? What is the prophetic word for the church? That's my question. Now, I ask all these questions this morning, and I honestly don't have answers to them. 
I'm not suggesting, but I think it's worth thinking about. Because throughout history, the church has often lost or surrendered its prophetic voice to become friends with, agents of tools of the state. In fact, Bonhoeffer in the 40s would argue, well, he, after he was dead, others argued he was killed by the state, that the German Lutheran church had surrendered its, its voice, its, its authority to speak the gospel because of its complicity and its unwillingness to stand up against what became Nazi Germany. And we could go back throughout history and look at the ways in which the church is wooed and welcomed and courted by the state and often succumbs. And in doing so, Dr. King, I would say Brueggemann, and many others would argue, we lose our, our edge. This, this function and office that the church is invited to live into at times, which is to be the conscience of the state. Are the gaps that exist in our housing or education or generational wealth or What's the other word I'm looking for? Household wealth in our child welfare. Are the gaps that exist in those places uh, that often fall down racial lines, are they, can you explain them with meritocracy? Essentially, the, these are the evidence of hard work on the one hand and laziness on the other. Or do we live in a racialized world that privileges and, and offers uh, uh, benefit to one particular group of people over another based on the color of one's skin? And is that okay? Does the church have any say or any voice to those kinds of issues or those moments in our life together as a people? To the church of Jesus, especially evangelicals, do our values of individualism and uh, relationalism, which we, uh, we love so much, right? You know, I'm saved by grace as an individual. We, we tell our kids this at camp. If you want to know Jesus, just accept him into your personal heart and he will be your personal savior. We love individualism and we love relationalism, which is to say that we think all the problems can be fixed by just getting people together. I love that. And there are also structures and systems at play and institutions. Our good friend David Swanson is helping us learn this in our learning lab. Are these values that we have of individualism and relationalism helping us or are, in this case, are they hindering us and keeping us from seeing things that we really do need to see as the church? As we lean into the story of Nathan who spoke truth to power, who operated as the conscience of the state, an invitation for us to ponder the question, where does our state or our union or our democracy need to hear the voice of the prophet to be called back and hear the voice of its conscience? I will say this, I think if we're to take this idea seriously, the idea of the, the church being the conscience of the state, that we're going to need to add to our arsenal of formation and education and the changing of hearts, the work of activism and advocacy. Here's what I mean by that. When we find gaps that we believe are inconsistent with the heart of God for shalom and for thriving for all people, the church not only needs to continue forming and shaping and helping change people's minds, but it needs to add to that activism and the changing of policies that, that produce those results. Now, a lot of times when the church starts doing that, people get their undies in a bunch and say, well, what business does the church have in politics? And I would just say, if you read the Gospels and you don't think Jesus was political, you're not reading the Gospels. Everything he said was, was a, co a confrontation to the, to the politic of his day. And I would argue that similarly in our day, 
There is an invitation at times for us as the, the gathered people of God to offer an alternative consciousness and an alternative perception of reality, one that is consistent with the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus and not the way of the state or the empire or whatever the dominant culture is saying it should be. So as we think about Nathan and his critique of power and his voice as the conscience of, of the king and the conscience of the kingdom and the empire, is there any way in which for us on this post-election week Sunday, any ways in which, am I out to lunch here on this or am I, am I, am I, am I barking up the right tree? Let me close with this. The scriptures have this very unique way of reading us, this beautiful and mystifying way that they find us and they, they, they when we're open to it, they have something to say for, to us and for us. And I wanna invite you this morning to, to attempt to find yourself in the story. And so maybe a couple of ways we could go here. Are there any Davids out there? Like the lights just got turned on. And maybe, you, maybe there is a pattern or a, gr- a number of decisions that have led you to a place and now you're standing there thinking, I've, I never thought I would be here or how did I get here? or I didn't intend to get here. And the lights have been turned on, to which I would invite you to turn to Psalm 51, which is David's response. David doesn't run from the lights when they get turned on, but rather he, he turns toward the light. He moves towards God. He pens a psalm, which is a, a psalm of repentance, which is only to say a turning in a different direction. And so this morning, I would say, if if that's you, if you find yourself there and the words, you're the man or you're that woman, ring true to a place that's maybe a little too close for comfort, I would say, as a pastor, one of your pastors, don't run, don't turn away, but turn towards the light and turn turn towards the love of God, which is fresh and new every morning as pure as the driven snow, it is there and available to us and for us. Maybe there's a few Nathans out there. The series that we're in is called The Prophet Among Us or The Prophets Among Us because we wanted to learn about the prophets. We wanted to hear their voice. We wanted to, 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 to listen to the things that they were saying, but also because we recognize that there are moments in our lives when we're called to be the prophet, when we're invited into that space to speak a word of critique or to, to nourish and uh, evoke and nurture a, a, a consciousness, a way of thinking and a perception, a way of seeing that's different than the dominant one around us and to offer that. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe you feel an invitation to be the prophet who, uh, to, who is the conscience of the organization or the family or the system. Um, to which I would say there are ways to do that that are healthy and life-giving and there are also ways to do that that are not. I would encourage you to make sure that you do not do that alone. <laughs> uh, that there are people around you that you trust who you have tested that word from the Lord that you believe so strongly in and that they would also affirm that is in fact a word from the Lord. I would encourage you to pray, fast and pray to make sure that your word of the Lord from the Lord is in fact that. So you can do that in a way that's that's thoughtful and mature and I would encourage you and maybe maybe it is maybe that is the invitation you feel maybe the prophet 
You feel like the prophet called to nurture and nourish and evoke a different way of thinking and seeing in your organization or your school or your family. To which I would say, stand up, prophets, and speak the word of the Lord in the places that you find yourself. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority, Dr. Martin Luther King. I think that's a word for us today. My invitation, my hope for us as a church, for us as the church of Jesus, that we would lean into and listen to the still and small voice of the Spirit, the one that is consistent with the life and the teachings of Jesus the Christ that is leading us to a way of seeing and thinking that may in fact be different and alternative and diametrically opposed to the ones that we find around us. And when we do, that we would stand and say, this is the kingdom of God. This is the love of Christ that we see demonstrated on Calvary, sacrificial for even our enemies. So church, maybe the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, as we take just a few moments in silence to consider uh, this story and the words of the pastor this morning, I pray that by your spirit you would find us where we are and confirm that which is true, that which is of you, that which is life-giving, and that you would uh, allow us to forget and never remember the things that are not. And so God, if there's anything that I have said uh, that's consistent with the heart of Jesus, may it May it find a home in us, may it find fertile soil in our hearts, and may it grow deep roots so that we might be the kinds of people who seek, uh, who live by compassion and mercy and justice and forgiveness, which law can never produce, but only your spirit can produce in us. So may it do that now, I pray. As we close, we make our way to the table, which again is a reminder of this call to unity. When Jesus was with his friends before he was crucified, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body and it is broken for you. And whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember that I have prayed for you and prayed that you would be one as I and the Father and the Spirit are one. So when you eat this, remember me. In the same way he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my, my blood shed for you. When you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. Come together from the left and the right, from as far as the east is from the west, and drink the same cup, this, this same meal, which makes you one in me. This table that we come to is not the table of the church. Thank God, it is the table of the Lord. And it is made ready for those who love God, those who want to love God more. So come, you who have 
a lot of faith, a little bit of faith, you who have been here often, you who maybe haven't been here for a while or never before, uh, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Not because I invite you or because the church invites you, but because the resurrected Christ invites you to come and be fed and be known and to be filled here at the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat, my friends. In the same way, I invite you to take the cup and hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. We'll close with one song this morning, a song we have sung before that is an invitation to the kingdom way. Um, So I'd invite you to either sing this with as much faith as you have or to let it wash over you, to let it be a balm, to let it be an invitation to you this morning. So let's sing this together.
to say this like with as much sincerity as I possibly can. Whether you're excited about the result of the election or you're really discouraged, regardless of what candidate you voted for, as important as that process is and us participating in that process is, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is yours. It is in you. It is around you. It is. So the invitation is clear. In the resurrection of Christ, a new way of being human was inaugurated. It started. And now that way of being, that life, that, that, that way of being human in the world is available to you and I right here and right now. And every time we step into it, every time we pick it up where we say, yes, that is, that is our identity, life happens. New things are born. Dead things get resurrected. Sick things get healed. Because the kingdom of God and the way of love and the way of Jesus brings life. And so to the church, be encouraged. Keep doing what we know we've been called to do and be, which is to find the people in the margins, to go to the outer edges of the towns, to all the people who feel like they got didn't get invited, and to make sure they know they are invited and that there is a seat at the table for them. And then walk arm in arm with those people to the table and remind them as much as they remind you that the love of God is yours. The kingdom of God is yours. It is in you. It is all around you. It is for you. It is happening right here and right now. It's not something we're waiting for. So get in on it and see what life comes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The church gathered together in the name of Jesus said, amen, amen, amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week. www.facebook.com backslash awaken community or on Twitter by awaken community see you next time